excuse me. Hello, hi, howdy. Welcome to the podcast. This is actually a special episode. Why is it a special episode, you? Why is it a special episode? It's the episode where we finally solve racism. <laughs> it's the episode where finally two white guys weigh in on black clans. <laughs> yes. And also the social political uh, climate of post-war Japan. Yes. So on this episode today, we are going to talk about three movies plus what we've been watching. Contrary to previous episodes where typically we would follow a somewhat recent release or a Netflix film or an old movie with another old movie that have had very tenuous strings attached to it. This marks the beginning of our new endeavor to try to make our podcast more like an actual podcast with the premise as opposed to whatever we were doing earlier. So uh, instead of just sort of randomly picking movies out of a hat or uh, based on the cruel contours of our desires. Or the cruel contours of uh, Netflix algorithms. Yeah, or that. We will pair a recently released movie, in this case, Spike Lee's newest joint, Black Klansman, I think is how the... You're actually supposed to pronounce it, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Hard case. Yep. And we are going to pair that film with our first director, who we will be covering in this format, who is a... was? I don't know. A... Uh, one well, of he's the, dead, so... Yeah, one of the central figures of the Japanese new wave, uh, Nagasa Oshima. We will uh, begin our journey into this man's filmography by looking at his first two feature-ish length films. One of them is feature like the other one is 60 minutes. Uh, first release in 1959, A Town in Love and Hope. Also known as A Street of Love and Hope. Yeah, it's translated variously. Uh, and then his second film, Cruel Story of Youth, which uh, I've also read has been translated as Naked Youth. So let's go on to our main feature, Black... Cook a Klansman. I assume that you're going to insert like a clip from the trailer or something right here, right? I've always thought of doing that, um, and I think it probably would add to the podcast, but also be extra work. <laughs> so, uh, Black Klansman is a 2018 uh, film directed by Spike Lee, uh, and which was written by Charlie uh, Watchtool, David Rebinowitz, Kevin Wilmot. And Spike Lee himself, and stars John David Washington and Adam Driver and Topher Grace. And it tells the story of Ron Stallworth, who was the first African American police officer in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And uh, after sort of being assigned to boring duty, which he dislikes, he quickly transitions to undercover work, and then he. Uh, begins to infiltrate the clan by uh, employing code switching in order to talk on talk with various members of the clan on the phone while Adam Driver plays his persona in person uh, and things quickly spiral based on real events. The, the character that uh, Washington plays, um, it's based on his own memoirs of the events because uh, as depicted in the film, apparently the actual files for what happens were, were destroyed. 
So, I mean, it is a subjective account and there has been some criticism over whether Ron Storworth really was all that he's depicted to be in this film. But we'll get into that later with our expert <laughs> racial commentary. But... Yes, I believe we both have doctoral degrees in race, is that? <laughs> I do have an honours degree in, in uh, civil rights. I mean, not in civil rights, but in history. And I wrote about the civil rights. <laughs> And I did study actually Stokely Carmichael, who is depicted here giving the speech that, that he intends. Who was part of the student nonviolent? Um, they're called SNCC. I, I always get the acronym wrong, but it's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah, I've definitely heard of that. And then he served as the honorary prime minister of the Black Panther mm, Party. Gotcha. SNCC sounds like something that Wolverine's cause would make. The noise that it would make when he comes out of his... Yeah. Well, you know how it was like a, an allegory for civil rights. That was that was one of the specific <laughs> allegories. <laughs> that was one of the allusions to the freedom writers. <laughs> this is great. We should have, we, we should just not even do this movie. How about <laughs> this is our uh, walking on eggshells special. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the Wolverine joke has to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free, but. Just remember that uh, more people that I know listen to this than people that you know. So, <laughs> okay, yeah. So that's that's Black Klansman. Um, what did you think of the film? I enjoyed it. What did you think of the film? Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, as with a lot of efforts from Spike Lee, I, I find it somewhat of a mixed bag. Yeah. I don't think every element of it is is successful. No, I agree with you. In some respects, I kind of appreciate that about Spike Lee, I, even though it, it doesn't necessarily always work as a coherent work and very often doesn't. I, I do like the fact that he's always unmistakably himself. Yeah, I agree. He is someone whose voice is, despite working in several different genres, uh, appears to be completely untrammeled by whatever constraints that have been placed on him. Except for maybe that remake of Old Boy, which he directed. <laughs> which I have not seen, but... I'm sure there are, like, some exceptions in his filmography. Like, I haven't seen that many of his his total filmography, but... But to, to discuss this film, because it's obviously sort of a mishmash of genres, right? Because on one hand, you have sort of this, like, raucous comedy where much is made of the fact that, you know, the clans people are so stupid that they'll accept that Rod Stallworth is just this white man because he basically just says all the correct talking points and stuff like that over the phone. Um, and there's a, a pretty good comic mileage that he gets of having, I don't know, these conversations, like, especially with David Duke, where it's like, a black per- person couldn't possibly speak like you're speaking to you right now. And that's like a pretty good visual joke, I think. Um, but it's sort of that plus, um, you know, emulate the, the more straightforward, like undercover detective work, right? That has a good degree of tension that's placed in it, right? Where Adam Driver's character, who is Jewish, but passes as as like a waspy white guy infiltrates the clan like directly and the you know the basic tension that's in any undercover movie where you know is he gonna be found out is he gonna successfully infiltrate them you know so that that's sort of placed together and it's also sort of coded with this like weird fusion of fact and fiction that's incorporated directly into the film one gets the sense that it's sort of like the fiction elements of the film almost work as like a extended connection between the semi-documentary footage that opens the film and with that has Alec Baldwin this like bizarre <laughs> performance as this uh, white nationalist guy uh, and then connects it to the end of the film which ends in documentary footage of 
um, the riots and or the the horrible like right wing rally in Charlottesville that happened last year and um, sort of other statements by other racist statements by Donald Trump and David Duke in the present day. As as usual with with Spike Lee, I think a lot of his political perspectives. Uh, and what he throws in there don't necessarily all cohere into a very cohesive statement. There, there are several sequences where, like, I don't know, like David Duke will be like, "Oh, we should make America great again," but it's like they could have just had the actors like turn to the camera and like shrug at you and be like, "Ah." Not only does he say like a version, not quite the exact uh, line, but a version of "Making America Great Again," but they also do an "America First chant as well. Yeah, they do. And then there's a scene where it's like, someone this racist and this uh, anti-immigrant and stuff could never be president. And I could get it's like, like this this feels so kind of cheap to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I I agree that they're cheap and and certainly not subtle by any means. But I was kind of happy to have that jab at Donald Trump in there. I don't I don't mind it, but a, a lot of this movie while I enjoyed it, definitely felt like it was a little bit plain to the audience that's going to watch it. You know what I mean? But it's not, it's not going to challenge the people who are already, like, agree with his political positions at all, you know? And I don't feel like it makes it a rousing argument. I mean, at least at least, at least regarding that stuff, I think there's some really interesting stuff regarding, like, the Black Power movement that I thought was way more compelling than some of the easy, like, Donald Trump is... But I, th- I think I think you're touching on on a good point in the sense that it, it actually should challenge the the audience, not necessarily a black audience, but certainly like us. <laughs> this is this is repeating criticism that has been uh, leveled against the film by by several people, most notably probably Boots Riley. But I I, th- I think the narrative of how the police deal with racism is way too tidy <laughs> and it, it should have ended on on a more uh, damning institutional note i think yeah but it's weird that like they i, mean, I think like the, the probably the worst moment of this in the film like, and it probably would have been a better film to me if like it, it, this hadn't happened it was the weird scene where like they get the racist cop to like admit his crimes and it's like Oh, that was terrible. Yeah, that was like the worst bit of the film, honestly. So uh, Ron Stallworth is, is the first uh, black policeman in this department. And the film does like show that he obviously deals with racial problems within the police department from other officers. Like it implicates like the high, the officials and everything. Like There's no like level at which there's not some sort of racial prejudice directed at against like. But essentially it gets to the point where they make a straw man out of the most racist one. And, and then they entrap him <laughs> and imprison him for, for just saying something in a bar, which obviously you can't. But, like, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't feel like the, the police would, I mean, at least not in America, would, like, they don't punish racist No, cops. that has never happened. No. Yeah, no, it's like... It does sort of a, attempt to say, you know, there's a problem with the higher-up power when they tell them to... Or to delete the, to erase the files and To stuff. get rid of the files and stuff. But it's not enough. Like, especially, like, after that, like, joyous scene in which they catch the bad cop and he gets punished. And also there's, there's like, um, simultaneous scenes or adjoining scenes of Ron Storworth being celebrated by everyone else in the office. And I, but I feel like especially, like, the, the reason this criticism falls so flat is that, like, or the reason that that scene falls so flat is it's like the implication seems to be that if we removed like all the racist cops right then institutional racism would just go away in the police force which is like i don't know if that's true you know because <laughs> it's it's putting the the fault in the police not on the institution itself or the structures that sort of 
create it uh or that that like run through it but rather on like bad actors you know and that's just not the i don't know i mean it's certainly not a political position that i agree with but one of the, the things that uh, the Brits Riley's piece sort of illuminated me about, which I probably wouldn't have thought about, is the idea that Ron Stallworth uh, is, is not a heroic figure at all. And he actually helped provide ammunition against these black activist groups. And they, they do they do show that in part. Um, but it's not like it's sort of a wide. It doesn't really uh, condemn him. Yeah. Like it doesn't. There's there's no, no condemnation of him. And they they the way it's presented in this film, it's like he goes to that one meeting with Stokely Carmichael and that's it. And then he moves on to this case, but apparently he was actually undercover for three years, which wow. is insane. Yeah. But I mean, obviously that's not the story that no. you wanted to tell. I mean, so. you, you still have to make a story. I mean, like a lot of stuff is like invented by this film. Yeah. Uh, I guess to make a, it more of a, a, a film, <laughs> not just like a tidy film. Yeah. Yeah. It does get to the point where he ends up foiling a, a bomb plot, right? A bomb, which never actually happened. Uh, in the real story but i mean that, that that's the sort of invention that i don't really have a problem with from from the perspective of what spike lee is trying to do with this film it's more taking someone who's real and like alighting the horrible things that they did but i mean i can't really necessarily speak to how much um, credibility what brutes rally is specifically saying there because i haven't researched the matter myself but it, i think it's interesting to think of it from that, that perspective yeah for sure for sure and like the film seems to what, especially like the final sequence, right? Like it's sort of a reconciliation between like radical and moderate African American political figures, right? Like that one, the the shot that ends like the fiction segment of the film where they like uh, point both are pointing the guns out at the burning cross, right? And then he uses like his dollar shot. Like that's what the the film it wants like African Americans to unite. Like that's the the sort of the message, right? I mean. And I know a lot of people had problems with that yeah. particular moment as well. Um, what did you think of the performances? Uh, I thought they were like fine. I don't know. They're nothing really set out to me as great. I feel like some, especially like the, um, oh, I like Topher Grace, but uh, like him and all, all the people who played Clans are a little too like, uh, they seemed like in on the joke. You know what I mean? Like they didn't invest fully mm. and it felt a little like cartoon Clansmen. <laughs> To a certain extent, I guess the one exception being like the uh, the previous leader of the chapter, who like I think that guy gave a, gave a pretty good like performance as like this like um, he's trying to be a bit more moderate. Yeah, and that's why that's why it's so like alarming. That's why it's, I think his performance is good. He's so like kind of boring, you know. And that is so much more concerning than like the crazy clansman who wants to murder people, you know. That's the danger of the David Duke type figure. Yeah, of course. I mean, and that's what he like explicitly said that he wants to do. But I feel like that is so much more um, pervasive and horrifying strain of racism. Obviously, like a a terrorist is also like incredibly concerning. But like this sort of idiot cartoon clansman who like blow themselves up at the end, like that's not really. It's just a little too like um, movie villain, you know. I I will say I think a kind of a big fall of the film is that the uh, John David Washington, who's like completely fine and Laura Harry who plays like his love interest and the uh, leader of the um, black student organization in Colorado Springs like they have a romance that does not feel <laughs> especially uh, good no and it doesn't it, yeah it's it's very much like an afterthought 
it, I mean, it gives it gives Spike Lee a chance to indulge in some references to black exploitation films and to debate different perspectives on addressing civil rights issues. Yeah, uh, it gives like a mouthpiece to that in the form of this this relationship, which is from you know a cop and an activist. So they they kind of stand in there as like as like ciphers for for his message. But otherwise, um, I mean, her character is not given much development yeah but neither is his really what i think is missing from this and this is also something i've i've, I've heard other people touch on is uh the context for why he wants to be a cop and where he's come from prior to this it's, it's just sort of just sort of starts with him signing up and there's one scene where he's like i always wanted to be a cop and that's kind of the yeah and, and we get like you know he had a military background and stuff but still like it's he's kind of a a, a bit of a mystery John David Washington uh, puts in a pretty good performance. It's just that there's not much in the screenplay that, that gives him much shading. But yeah, he, I mean, I think he's, he's pretty good in the, the comedy sequences. The one thing that really stood out that I really enjoyed was the score. Oh, I did not like the score, actually. Not the necessarily the soundtrack choices, which were fine, but there were some, some of the sections of the score I liked. I like the soundtrack. I, I, don't, I didn't really enjoy it that much. I thought it was a little too like uh, overbearing. Terrence Blanchard did the score let's see what what other what about uh, adam driver what did you think of him i thought he was pretty good yeah he's but he's always like pretty pretty all right he's given maybe the most room as an actor to to do something emotional and i thought i thought his character is also the most like detailed in a way yeah because like it, it brings up the idea of double cautious which is obviously like a very important um philosophical position that you know uh w-e-b du bois uh, illustrated, right? Du Bois. Du Bois, sorry. And um, I don't know, it, it almost illustrates it better with his character than the sort of obvious doubling of, of Ron Stallworth as voice and person. He's more of a complicated character. He's not just superficially good and, uh, you know, he goes through a development kind of more significant than any other characters in a way. Because initially he's just like, oh, this the police work that I'm doing is just a job. Like, I don't really care that much about the political implications of it. But he sort of has an awakening over the film, in part driven by his like Jewish identity, which is not particularly strong in him. It's, it's probably worth noting that the character in which he's based was not Jewish. Yeah, it's funny. This is just something that I just found really curious, and I'm just wondering how exactly it played out in real life. So I know that uh, Stallworth initially made contact right over the phone. I think he would have... Like, it conflates the time. I think he would have made contact maybe more than once before they wanted to meet him in person. Yeah, for sure. Probably for establish sure. a rapport. Um, and then obviously they send this other cop in his place when they do the, the person-to-person meeting. What doesn't make sense to me from like a procedural perspective is once they've sent the person to go in person and uh, pretend to be this character they've created, when they make any subsequent phone contact, why do, would not Adam Driver just do it? He's already proved that he can like convince them in person. Like he's already taken the most danger. There's no point going back to to Ron Stallworth being on the phone. Is there? <laughs> I mean, I guess aside from like comedy. Aside from yeah, aside from the conceit of the film. Did you find it funny? Um, in parts. I, I think I saw it with the exact wrong audience, which is to say a bunch of old white people. <laughs> Who uh, I was like basically the only person in the theater laughing at all. Some of them like made noises, or they said Donald Trump. So hopefully that means that they don't like him. But I don't know. I, I doubt the the average Trump fan would have 
would have been attracted to this. Unless they were thinking it's like, oh, Klansmen. I like Klansmen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's the, is there any type of Klansmen that wears a black world? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think we both had sort of a, the similar sort of mixed response to this. And I think it is very enjoyable when it plays with those genre elements. Um, but yeah, it has some sort of strange political stuff going on. To touch on the stuff at the end again, where it where it shows the the contemporary footage, uh, I thought the Charlottesville stuff worked well. I thought that was like a, a good connection to draw. Yeah, I agree. The bit where it showed the the protest where the person ran people over in a car, and then it showed like this person died or whatever, like in honor of her. Heather Hair. I thought that was a bit exploitative and that detracted from it for me. Um, but I thought the Charlottesville thing was enough to say, like, this is still... It's something that's not gone away in the intervening years of horrible racial bigotry. <laughs> and it was fine showing Trump as well, I guess. Yeah, of course, of course. I wish they just had that and not had the, like, the jokey, like, elbow nudges, you know? What did you think of the bizarre opening with the Alec Baldwin? Um, again, I've heard people criticize this. I actually enjoyed the opening. Yeah, I did too. I didn't really like Alec Baldwin, but I actually liked his jokey performance in this bit but i like that um and a lot of this film was it almost functions as film criticism in a way or as how important film is as a medium in shaping like political belief and like racial belief too because like it literally opens with footage of gone with the wind and it returns to several points to the birth of a nation which is uh, I think pretty the most racist film of all time i think we can safely say minus like maybe some Nazi films? I don't know. But it's hard to be more racist than a film that, like, reignited the Klan, you know? Although it's obvious to, to use that as a target, I think it, it still needs to be brought up. Like, because it, it's it's often just accepted as a part of film history for its technical achievements. Or just to give an example, I was at a film aesthetics class recently, and it was just like, this is a deeply racist film, but it doesn't necessarily go into the specifics of how racist it is, you know what I mean? Like, why not just watch one of his shorts or something instead of Birth of a Nation? Because like, obviously it's an important filmmaker if you look at history as this progression which it is in some degree um and obviously filmmakers reference back to his films you know we don't have to get into this but i I feel i feel like there's so many other examples of films that did the same technical innovations that birth of a nation did that you could watch and get the same like basic experience i don't know i don't see the need to like hold it up as this like you know important example of film (laughs) i think that the main thing though is I, i just remember like growing up and hearing about Birth of a Nation, you actually usually don't get much of the racist contact with it. You just you just hear it as part of the discussion on um, developments in film. Yeah, it's just, it's entered the canon and it's been stripped of all the terrible things that it is. So I think, so that's why I think it justifies Spike Lee, like, attacking it and, like, saying, look how racist this actually is. And it's, but it, it, it almost works as, like, a condemnation of, like, that sort of, spectacle filmmaking in general right in a way because it's like oh it was a blockbuster like i don't know if this is necessarily attention but i definitely read it as sort of like a criticism of like the the misuse of film spectacle in in i don't i don't know where i was going with that it's sort of half-formed just like my penis <laughs> that's a great great way to cap off our uh, serious discussion <laughs> uh anyway <laughs> Just cut that out. Um, anyway, let's Your see. Your penis. Yeah, my penis. No, we, we're not on Oshima yet. We're, we're too early in his career. We need no, to... You need to wait a bit for the penis cutting. Anyway, because I actually feel like the, the, the way in which it interrogates film history is probably the most 
the stuff that I personally got the most out of this film. I need to uh, to piddle. <laughs> I do too. So, shall I take a break? I feel like it'd be really uh, of poor taste if you included <laughs> the piss sound effects. Uh. Yeah, I agree. Picture a box. Just your average, everyday box. Except this one doesn't have any marks on it. It's an unmarked box. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it was going. But I'll bet you'd like to find out what's inside. Join me on Unmarked Box. Every, uh, so often on uh, Off-Brand Horse. Okay, so our next segment is the first in a series of segments about the Japanese director, Nagisa Oshima. And we'll be looking at two of his early films, which we will call A Town of Love and Hope and Cruel Story of Youth. So let's start with... Uh... <laughs> I forgot the name of the movie. A Street in Love and Hope. I did finish watching this earlier this morning, which is why I recorded late. Uh, and I watched the majority of it last night uh, on my cell phone. So you have the idea. I watched it. I watched it today as well. Not on my cell phone. But uh, so I probably did not have the ideal viewing experience of this film. So it tells the story of a family who are doing it tough. And the son of the family is in school and the mother works as like a shoe shiner. Um, and the sister who they imply has potentially some sort of mental illness. Or a warning disability or something. Yeah, or learning disability. That's the family. Mostly it's centered on the young boy. And uh, at the start of the film, we see that he's operating a sort of scam in which he sells a pigeon on the street. And then often what happens is the person he sold it to will be careless at some particular point and the pigeon will escape and it will home back to their house and they'll just sell it again. And this is a scam they've done a number of times um, because they're so desperate for money. And it's something that the mother has kind of forced the, the boy to do. Um, and there's like an emotional cost to this because the younger sister has a bond with the birds and she gets really upset whenever they're temporarily unavailable. And uh, it sort of traces their journey and a school teacher takes their situation to heart when she finds out how much they're struggling. And she tries to get good opportunities for the kid, um, including a job at a TV manufacturing plant. And it just it just sort of follows their particular story as somewhat of a microcosm of what is happening with the economic situation in Japan after the war and the social situation. Yeah, the stratification between... The rich and the poor. Um, and it's a relatively short film. It's, it's like uh, just over an hour. Um, and it's shot in crisp black and white. Just in terms of the film style, it's very sort of muralist-y in that there's not a lot of like constructed sets, it seems. And No, no I think some of the actors are clearly non-professionals as well. Like the boy. I think it's an interesting to talk about this film after talking about Black 
Klansmen, because we kind of touched on the fact that Black Klansmen was a little bit of a failure in the sense of, in terms of condemning the institutions that were responsible for a lot of the problems and sort of putting it on particular individuals instead. Whereas this this does the opposite, which, which shows that this sort of institutional inequity and, and economic inequity cannot be overcome by naive but kind-hearted intervention from individuals. Especially rich individuals. <laughs> yeah. So many of the notable post-war Japanese films, not just of the new wave, but but even, you know, established directors have been working for years, like Mizuguchi in particular. So much of their focus was on this particular milieu of people really struggling in devastating economic conditions and making moral compromises. Um, very often the films are about prostitution. This is one of the ones that isn't, but... But don't worry, he'll get to prostitution soon enough. It's a really prevalent theme in, in this era of, of Japanese cinema. In terms of just how it's made, um, you sort of said that it has like a neorealistic kind of style. Um, it's certainly not fussy, is, is what I would say. It's very clean and crisp and economical. Unlike some of the other Oshima films that I've seen, it's not does not draw attention to its own construction at all. No, no. I think it's intentionally trying to be stripped back and economical. It does have some experimental flourishes that kind of just destabilize that system a little bit, but for the most part, it's it's just straight ahead. Could you? I, I honestly did not notice any of the experimental flourishes. Like, I don't really... the, the closest I can think of at the moment is this the last scene of the film. Oh, yeah, where it sort of goes from a film that's not... Very, not heavily reliant on symbolism to what that it like sort of retroactively makes the pigeons the symbol of like transactional yes yes and and even just the way that scene is shot it has a number of yeah cuts of yeah sure, sure, sure. flashy moments of of the woman and stuff like that, that's probably the most effective moment in the entire film for me actually yeah i think it's a it's a powerful ending yeah but i thought the rest of the film was a little like okay <laughs> it just felt, felt felt so like the the paring down of the style and like I just really found it to be sort of, like, boring in, in a way I find a lot of, like, social realist dramas to be boring, you know? Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean, but I didn't find this boring. Like, it seemed like a remarkably assured debut from a technical perspective, and it seemed like he was very clear on this, what he wanted to do and the, the message he wanted to say, and he got in there and got out, and it was really quite straightforward and well-honed, I think. I mean, I didn't necessarily... I didn't necessarily love the film, but I appreciate what it was trying to do and and the fact that it executed it really successfully, I think. Just for me, as you mentioned, there's so many films that are just like this, but, you know, stapled in other movies. And I just didn't, I don't know, like the the sort of institutional criticism just wasn't enough for me. It's just like, okay, yeah, like there's nothing for me to really attach myself to in this film. So I think maybe your feeling towards Street of Love and Hope uh, might be closer to my feelings towards Cruel Story of Youth. Uh, so, Cruel Story of Youth, uh, his second film. Um, and apparently I read a review that suggested that, or said that it was like, one of the reasons that he was allowed to make so many movies is this movie was like incredibly financially successful. Like, I guess sort of like breathless. And actually like sort of single-handedly saved the studio that he was working for. So maybe that's why he was allowed to be so such an experimental director, because he had this really like early financial success. Um, but it, it tells the story of two youths. Kiyoshi and Makoto. Yes. Who are, um, I guess, uh, young lovers sort of enmeshed in the leftist politics of the time. More so 
Hyashi than Makoto. Um, and uh, they meet in this bizarre instance where Makoto is getting a ride home from an older gentleman who drives her to a love hotel. And then is like, so are we going to have sex? And then he comes in and beats the, beats the shit out of him and then uh, steals all his money. And this is sort of like the fetish that will... <laughs> Or the thing that'll drive the relationship forward, and it's this very like sort of strange mixture of like documentary style sequences shot during the protests against the U.S.-Japan security treaty, um, intermixed with this sort of melodramatic but very explicit sort of love story between them. A, uh, a relationship that starts with one of the principal characters uh, raping the other one is not one that will uh, necessarily be mutualistic and healthy. No, so, I, I mean, you used a good term before when you said it's unsparing on, on its characters because the setup is that this young man saves this young woman from being raped and then proceeds to rape her several times over the course of the film, in, in fact. But the, the first scene in which he does it is, is disturbing and memorable. There's this weird, like, industrial waste water thing. I don't know, it's a very sort of strange setting. They're on, like, these logs, and he, he pushes her into the water, and she can't swim, and he foils her attempts to come back to shore, and she's almost drowning. Well, first he tries to, he, he tries to like, have sex with her, and she rebukes him, and then she, he does this. And then he does this in order to get his way. Yeah, yeah, the gender politics in summer are ungreat, I would say. Yeah, so that's what made me uncomfortable kind of watching it because I wasn't sure, like, the extent to which the film was, like, condemning this weird relationship. But then ultimately it feels like it condemns everybody. Yeah, I mean, even if he ends up condemning the relationship at the end, but in the moment, the way it, like, sort of uses, like, tropes of melodrama and stuff, uh, it's very uncomfortable the way it's their relationship is portrayed. Would you Would you say that it is intentional, the how uncomfortable you're supposed to feel. Well, that's what I'm not sure. Like, that's the thing. Like, we don't know necessarily what uh, Oshima's gender politics were like at the time he made this film. But that was certainly one of the elements that, uh, like you, made me feel uncomfortable throughout the film. (laughs) And again, again, this is a film that can be placed in the tradition of Japanese cinema at the time, especially the films that not only focus on the changing economic conditions, but the social conditions and the, the, the generation gap between the previous generation and the upcoming post-American occupation youth. Sure. But because a big strain in this film is the contrasting uh, Makoto with her older sister, who was in a unrequited like relationship and, and was also enmeshed in like leftist politics when she was a young woman. And I feel like I just, I don't know about the, enough about the history to really like walk into the, what it was going for here necessarily, you know? <laughs> But it's definitely a theme that uh, Ozu has explored in a very different fashion, as you might imagine. Yeah, um, and I think I think also the film functions in part as like a sort of parody of like a, a youth, like a rebellion style youth film, you know, where it, it, the, it connects the sort of anarchy of youth this film does to just like nihilism, <laughs> really. And it, it it's it's a film without contrary to the first film there's no love or hope in this movie whatsoever yeah so the the french new wave sort of stylistic stuff that is kind of in the mix seems to be used for a very different purpose Uh, but it's probably worth saying that the cinematography is really amazing yeah it's it's great the use of color and light especially i was really drawn to the use of music and sound yeah the avant jazz kind of sound yeah but there's this there's this great recurring theme 
um, which they did sort of bar at one point in the beginning of the film that recurs like, uh, and it's it's undiegetic and it's like this like really disruptive moment where you're like, why is this music playing? And it, and it recurs over and over again to like, and it almost comes to symbolize the fantasy of like youth culture, right? The disconnect from everyday concern. Yeah, because there's this great moment where the song plays and like Makoto has just found out that she's pregnant and they sort of like dance around and are like happy for a bit and then like really cuts off immediately when he's like, you should get an abortion. Kiyoshi goes to the clinic where Makoto got her abortion and she's sort of recovering from the procedure and he's sort of there to comfort her overnight. And then he brings out these apples and begins eating this apple in this really intense way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like this like long take of him eating this apple. Yeah. It's like, what's going on? I was wondering if this, okay, well, it was probably too early at this point, but I was like, is this going to be like the culminating sequence in the film? And then it's just going to end. <laughs> but, uh, but that, yeah, I enjoyed that bit because I couldn't too. quite understand what it was doing. It seemed like it was supposed to be some sort of symbolic thing, but it was, it was yeah, yeah this, I'm not the, sure what it was. It was also somewhat lost on me. Yeah. Uh, like maybe the, the, like the anarchy of youth is just, it, it just consumes, like there's no end to it maybe? Maybe that's stretchy. Or maybe it's just an apple. <laughs> he's just like, I'm going to shoot this apple. <laughs> hey, I'm watching people eat apples. And he's like, hey, we're like three minutes short on our promised running time. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think that's the direct quote from him. He's like, you know, I just, I just like, I feel like apple should be in movies for <laughs> I just hate it in movies where people buy food and they don't eat it. So I'm going to correct that by making you eat this entire apple. <laughs> but uh, I think this is the type of film... The, 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 I find hard to like really really like as like a piece of art like I can I can say like I, I see what you're doing you know uh-huh. and this is interesting and it's got elements that are that, you know are challenging and interesting and, but it doesn't culminate in something that has the riches of the, the art that I like if I can be that pretentious that's because you're just so fucking bourgeoisie that you can't and there's like the, a very weird tension in the film between the melodrama of the story but with the sort of you know, like graphic realism of like, like you know, like I, again, like she gets an abortion, like a, illegally at a clinic. There's a social realism that's there. And it also incorporates like documentary footage, as I said, of both the student protests, like semi-documentary footage of like the characters being involved in student protests and also like actual documentary footage of simultaneous student protests in, in South Korea that are happening. That, that kind of thread of the film seemed to be like introduced early on and then dispensed with largely but i feel like i feel like that's part of the point right is that like the the radical politics come second to these like melodrama dramatic relationships Mm. and like the only thing that the that that um sort of rebellion the the romantic quote-unquote romantic rebellion can result in is like nihilism and death right like that's sort of what the thematic through line is no that makes sense but i I think i think maybe it, it could have been enforced uh, at a later stage in the film. Yeah, for sure. Well, no, but he, he, he does, he keeps on bringing up radical politics. I don't think that's ever like absent. The the sister and, and stuff, um, played by Yoshiko Kuga. I, I'm familiar with her from uh, Ozu films. So she's in Equinox Flower. So it's interesting to, to compare performance here. Like she's a really great actor. She probably gives the best. She probably does give the best performance here. And it's more, it's the most reminiscent of a restrained Ozu type performance. It's not like a hugely demonstrative, melodramatic performance. Yeah, which is interesting, especially clashing with the the two lead performances. But it, but it, it it actually serves to emphasize the generation gap as well. Like she's from an earlier era where it was more reserved and, and re- repressed. Yeah, more Aussie. 
I do feel like I do think this film suffers as some films do suffer by not offering like any sort of like, uh, like there's no like solution offered at all. I like I kind of enjoyed the trashy way he kills off the two lead characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just sort of like it just happens. It's like ultimately like that's the path that their lives would have taken down right if they pursued the specific like sort of gang stuff it makes like it makes it makes thematic sense but it's kind of trashy in the way it's done yeah i agree it's like really surprised to be like bloody and corny too but the rest of the film has been like pretty like uh if not like restrained in terms of like its violence like not bloody i guess what if we do uh night of fog in japan and the pleasures of flesh the next episode all right okay perfect we did it we solved oshima now it's time for bonus features. Bonus features. So let me think. So I watched Badlands, rewatched Badlands, huge Terrence Malcolm, it's his first film. It's very good. Uh, I don't think I need more of a recommendation than that, but it, it really sort of shows in embryonic form the themes that come to dominate the rest of his career. And it's got some really great performances by Martin Sheen and Sissy Smith that could play too, like sort of um, Glover's on the Run, but it's not like a... It's not like a, uh, I almost said Dirty Harry, Bonnie and Clyde sort of like, oh, the youthful energy is, you know, like something that's really explored in this stuff. It's more like just like the weird um, violence and the, the seductive, the violence that sort of works underneath like, uh, I don't know, like the image of youth rebellion and um, contrasting that to nature. I don't know, it's really enjoyable. Um, and I also watched Madeline's Battle, which is a new film uh, that I liked a lot. I watched Naked Lunch, the Cronenberg adaptation of William S. Burroughs' novel that I think is amazing. He gets some just great imagery out of it, and it's just a really interesting interrogation uh, of one artist by another. Uh, it's just a really interesting film to watch if you're a writer or spend a lot of time writing, and it uh, extrapolates certain things about the writing process that I thought were really brilliant. Um, I watched Jade, which is like basic instinct but terrible and about anal sex and <laughs> <laughs> stars my favorite actor of all time david caruso one of his very unfortunately few lead performances um and is just trash there's a weird scene where william freaking who directed it is like i'm gonna make a great chasing because that's what i do and it's just terrible <laughs> and you're like why am i watching this um I watched A New Tale as Adoichi, which I don't want to get into detail about. I watched The Ninth Gate, The Ninth Gate, the Roman Polanski directed uh, Johnny Depp starring. <laughs> Non-problematic film, let's say. No, it's it's a film that I watched uh, because I was like, that sounds like something that I would enjoy. And then I didn't really enjoy it, and then I felt bad about myself for watching it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, there's a, it's, I just thought it was kind of boring and um, there's some good sequences, but for the most part, like it has a really intriguing sort of premise and backdrop, but doesn't really do anything with it. Um, and I, th- there's one specific thing that I really responded to this movie, which is that so many people who uh, apparently handle rare books like smoke around them, and there's this bizarre <laughs> scene where like someone drops all the cigarette ash on this like rare this book, which apparently there's only three copies of it in existence, and they're just like, oh, I'm just smear the ash off, and it's like. What the fuck? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, no one wears gloves in this movie. It's crazy. Um, I watched a double Kevin Smith feature. Uh, I watched Clerks, which I kind of enjoyed. 
Um, even if I thought it, it wasn't necessarily funny, though I did enjoy the, uh, <laughs> as you, I think you might guess, <laughs> I enjoyed the weird thing about how he took the dead person. I enjoyed that joke. I don't think the film entirely works, but I, I like, I, do you think it hits at something that's true about, like, dead-end, terrible jobs, right? And it has a freshness that his subsequent films perhaps lack. Yeah. Or, and I feel like the, the very sparse, or not sparse, but the the um, uninteresting camera work and stuff makes sense with the very low-budget aesthetic that and, you know, production that the film came out of, right? I still, I don't know. Kevin Smith does not make me laugh, which is why I don't find his films to be that appealing. I also, I specifically find Jay and Silent Bob to be incredibly annoying characters. Uh, and, which is why, of course, I decided to watch Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which is maybe the least funny movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, a movie that, like, I hate I I hate it when uh, films like preempt criticism of themselves by being like this is so stupid you know what I mean? There's a great scene where Ben Affleck and uh, Jay and Silent Bob were talking about why would anyone go see a Jay and Silent Bob movie and then they turn to the audience and I'm like I I hate this why am I watching this and yet I pers- and yet I persisted in finishing it. Uh, I, did, I did not I fucking laugh. loved it. I did, yeah. I did. I did not laugh at all. It's virulently homophobic. You're laughing now, <laughs> just thinking about it. So I don't know who you're trying to fool. I hate you so much. Uh, this, this is an intolerable film. There are several sequences that just feature naked or near naked women dancing around for the pleasure of Jay and Silent Bob. Please watch Clerks too. Okay, I will. <laughs> I will watch that one. But uh, I hope that Kevin Smith never makes another movie. Because Dan's Side Bomb was like one of the worst films I've ever seen. So after Quirks, uh, I watched the movie Skyfall, a pretty enjoyable James Bond film. I think we can agree. Um, yeah, I, I didn't love it. There's really one really great sequence in Shanghai. But yeah, there's a, there's a, there's there's some great moments in it. I think. Yeah, cinematography is killer, but especially in comparison to like Spectre, uh, I think it's pretty exemplary. It's very enjoyable. I don't know if it's like a great film it's got some weird like conservative aspects to it but James Bond always has to some degree um but uh and I actually really enjoy the ending where they are setting traps and stuff I always like that as a movie device you know anyway so after Skyfall I watched Lupin the Third The Castle of Cagliostro which is a first Hayao Miyazaki film uh very enjoyable a bit thin in terms of the thematic depth that some of his other films attain. So I watched uh, uh, Life of an American Fireman, uh, The Great Train Robbery, The Musketeers of Pig Alley. Um, so we spent a lot of time, a decent amount of time talking about D.W. Griffith, and this is one of his short films. Um, not as racist as his other films. Uh, Suspense, which is a 1913 film directed by a woman. What? It has this. Uh, it's it's worth it watching, even if it's got some like weird classist issues that it, or classist problems it, it is worth watching for this really awesome uh really early like sort of sort of split screen thing where the there are three filmed images that are presented in triangles all at the same time <laughs> and it's just amazing where oh is that the one where, where there's an attack in the staircase like a guy is, is like coming into a house yes and it's cutting between her and the guy approaching. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. So that on the story of film, it looked interesting. It's 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 worth a lot. It's only like ten minutes, so you can watch it really quickly. 
But again, it has this. It has these great split screen sequences. That's probably the best part. And it has a lot of really interesting camera angles, and some of the framing is just amazing. Like there's a chase sequence where um, you see the other car from the perspective of the person who's being chased, and and it just it's just like a sort of close up of the rear view mirror of the car that's being chased, that is showing the car behind it, not the rear view mirror, one of the side mirrors. It's so cool. It's just it's just crazy how they filmed it, uh, especially the cameras that bulky. But it's definitely worth a watch even if it's got some weird stuff to it. Uh, I watched The Immigrant, the uh, Charles, Charles, quote unquote, quote, Charlie, quote, Chaplin film. Yeah, it was pretty good. And finally, uh, just the other day, I watched Full Metal Jacket, which I'd never seen, which I quite enjoyed. The dominant um, memory I have of the film is, is the first half. It's, I think it's a pretty common experience. But I feel like, uh, in part because it, it, it's sort of the more traditional half of the film, in a way, which is very much like, oh, you're going to watch, you're going to feel this empathy for this abused character, and then, you know, then it ends. And then the, the second half is much more diffuse and uh, complicated, I think. Mm. Um, but I really liked it a lot. And I'm glad that I watched it. And was that all you saw? Yep, that's it. Okay. I'll talk about a few of the films I saw at the Melbourne Film Festival. I, I only saw a few films from the, the film festival, and the way I normally select films is to find the longest films and go with my brother to see them. And the the reason I've developed that habit is that I did that a few years back when they showed Happy Hour, which is the Ryusuke Hamaguchi masterpiece, you know, one of the, the best films I'd, I'd seen certainly that year. And um, that experience uh, told me that it's a good idea to select really long films when I go to these, these film festivals. That idea somewhat backfired um, with the longest film at this festival, which is The Season of the Devil, which is a Filipino film. It's shorter than Happy Hour. It's 234 minutes. So it's, uh, it's around the, the four-hour mark. And it's a musical. So... All the dialogue, or the vast majority of the dialogue, is sung a cappella, um, and it's done by a one-man band called Lav Diaz, who wrote all the music and directed it and edited it. But it was one of those films in which it it's, has really interesting things, and it does tie into um, Filipino history and, and deals with a lot of issues that would definitely be very raw to, to any of the locals who lived through those particular periods. Like, a lot of it is about periods of, like, of destabilized militia-based governments uh, and where they where they create these local militias and they abuse their power in these little villages and stuff like that. So it's sort of set in a village that's been overrun by, by this force. But it's one of those films where you sit through the four hours, four deliberately slow hours, and um, you don't feel like the length was at all justified. The, the scenes extend beyond the point where they've done what they need to do. So it's a little bit clunky. I couldn't imagine there would be anything but uh, an advantage to cutting this film down to a more manageable runtime and maybe working on a bit of rhythm with the way it all is assembled together. But it is like an interesting film and certainly has to be admired for its ambition. Then the second longest film, which is slightly shorter, but also around the four minutes shorter, in fact, around the four hour mark, um, was a Chinese film by uh, Hubo called An Elephant Sitting Still, which um, tells the story of uh, a number of characters 
as they, they go throughout their life. It has kind of a bit of a nihilistic perspective. In fact, the director committed suicide while he was trying to fight for this film to get produced after he'd filmed it. So I think maybe fighting with the production company and stuff in terms of um, releasing it at this length. Essentially what we're seeing is his work, but it was like released posthumously with the help of his family. And it, it certainly has the perspective of perhaps someone who's struggled with depression. And yeah, there is a bit of, of adolescence in its worldview. He wasn't that old. I think he was just over 30 or uh, even younger. But I actually really thought this film was successful uh, and I didn't feel it, it it would benefit from being shorter than it is. I think it was it used its length well. And one thing it did that I think was interesting is, is you know the prevalence of shallow-focused photography in independent cinema as kind of a shortcut to looking cinematic, as it were, especially on a smaller budget. I think that's why DSLR cameras... Um, as such a boon to independent filmmakers because you can achieve that with a proper photographic lens in a way that you couldn't certainly with old digital video cameras. It becomes a bit of a cliche because it, it's so easy to make it look at least superficially more interesting when you have that focus between the foreground and background. It does give it a pretentious lyrical kind of look that does make it look like a more prestige production. But this film does it so well. Like the whole film is shot like this. And because it's shifting between, like, four major characters, it actually feels like you're shifting between their internal perspective, like it's first-person narration. He's actually a novelist, and this is based on his, his novel. And it actually is a really effective cinematic way of just getting that one character's perspective. And oftentimes there's, like, action that takes place in the background of a shot that is, like, just com a complete blur, and we only really get the shot of the, the character in the foreground. Uh, so it actually had a really thematic tie to to the material, which which um, it doesn't necessarily always do in when that technique is overused. So I thought it was a really effective use of that, and um, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was great. And uh, the last film I saw at the film festival was Asako One and Two, which was by the director of Happy Hour, Ryusuke Hamaguchi. My favorite person. It's considered a lesser work of his. Certainly, it's only two hours long, so on a duration level, it's less. Um, I still really enjoyed it. I think I think he's still a really interesting director. Obviously, it's got a, a much narrower scope than than Happy Hour did. Um, it just follows a, a more direct story. It's this amusing tale of of a woman who has a kind of meet cute with a, a really unexpected meet cute with a guy in the street and they just kind of lock eyes and then he kisses her suddenly and they have a romance and he's kind of this weird guy who's uh, mysterious and then he he always like disappears and then comes back and then one day he disappears and just never comes back and then she meets someone else later in her life who looks exactly the same and it's played by the same actor and initially she's reluctant to get involved with him because it's weird <laughs> But then she does end up in a relationship with him. And then the original guy comes back into her life at some point and complicates things. But it's, yeah, it's very, I actually find it quite fun and uh, really enjoyable the way it plays out. Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I think that was, a, that was a really good film as well. Um, I also watched the Netflix romantic comedy that everyone is talking about, which you already alluded to, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. 
And I will say that unlike the similarly lauded uh, Set It Up, I thought it's a really solid, enjoyable romantic comedy. If that's your thing, which it is my thing, so I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I know it is. Um, and it, it has an it has a cute premise. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but I'll explain it to you anyway. It's a romantic comedy from from a female perspective, which I normally prefer to the ones that are more from a male perspective. To be honest, because you're a misandrist, you hate all men. That's right. So the the lead character, she's not as outgoing as she should be in terms of you know getting into relationships and and stuff as a way of processing her feelings and crushes on other boys. She writes love letters to them which she completes and puts in envelopes and addresses, but never sends. So she keeps them in a box in her room. And um, then her mischievous sister, who takes pity on her situation, decides to mail all the letters. So they go to all the boys that that she's loved before. And that sets in motion a a series of events. So I think that was a good good premise for a rom-com. Hits all the notes that you want it to hit and is... Just generally very enjoyable. The only odd thing to to note is that, uh, I mean, this is common for films set in high school and stuff. Some of the actors look significantly older than the characters they're supposed to be, Uh, including, um, this is something my my brother told me, the the person who plays her older sister who goes off to college like early in the film. Um, my brother thought it was supposed to be the mother of the family until <laughs> at some point they mentioned that the mother has died. Oh, so funny. The last film I watched was um, Love on Delivery, which is uh, a, a Stephen Chow film from 1994. And it's sort of a goofy romantic comedy martial arts film in which um, Stephen Chow's character learns martial arts in order to defeat an evil Japanese guy who who wants to take over the um, local gym and replace it with karate, (laughs) (laughs) to be simplistic about it. And, uh, yeah, it's it's very silly, but it's very enjoyable. I enjoy these type of Hong Kong films. But the thing that that really struck me about it is the thing that's not really mentioned that much, but... They often single out Edgar Wright as someone who really thinks about comedy in a, in a visual way and, and brings something new to the genre of comedy when so many contemporary American comedies, as an example, are usually shot quite flatly and rely more on the screenplays and the Im- improvisation between the actors. I mean, there's all, all sorts of um, idiotic video essays you can watch about it if you like. Yeah, I think I'll pass. Um, but, but he does seem to, to me to to be part of the lineage from these earlier Hong Kong comedies and even the Hong Kong style in, in general, which is have, have very dynamic camera movements and fast editing that are actually used in service of gags and all that sort of stuff and that, that type of visual comedy, uh, which definitely Stephen Chow indulges in in this particular film. And this film even seems structurally quite similar to something like Scott Pilgrim. Um, so I, I thought that parallel... It's uh, interesting, but uh, that's all the films I watched. Uh, actually, I watched the entire Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy as well. Oh, really? <laughs> Need to talk about this a little bit. I signed up to Amazon Prime um, in order to watch So, which was a, a newly released Prime film. 
um, just for the trial period. And while I was still under the trial where I didn't have to pay anything, it could cancel. Um, I looked for other stuff to take advantage of, of this deal, but I uh, found it wanting. And the only thing I ended up doing was re-watching Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. And um, I still think that the, certainly the first two of the trilogy are among the best superhero films, uh, in my opinion. I really enjoy the tone that he strikes between the, the humour and the, the melodrama of comics as well. Um, I think he did a really good job capturing actually what I've always responded to in, in Spider-Man, which is a lot of that stuff of juggling his adolescent problems with his responsibilities as a superhero. And all the stuff that don't, ha- don't have to do with Spider-Man, I really, really enjoy. So I enjoyed it a lot more than any of the scenes in which he's Spider-Man. Pretty much. So I enjoy all that melodramatic stuff. So the the common wisdom is that the second one is the best one. I've always felt the first two were pretty close in quality. And actually, if I think I had to pick one, I'd probably prefer the first film. I just have Willem Dafoe saying, Avenge me! I really like Willem Dafoe's performance. And I think he's... Was it in the second one? Perfect. Uh, he, he, that could be in the second one because he says it into the mirror. Okay. So I guess I'll have to disagree and say that... Uh... The second one's better. I can't imagine better casting. Like, he's just perfect. Like, he looks like a goblin man. <laughs> but it's the perfect balance of, like, he's a um, prestige actor. Yeah. <laughs> but he also looks like a goblin. He looks weird. Like, he's got the right face. And he's able to to straddle the boundary between just being completely hammy <laughs> yeah. and being sincere. Yeah, for sure. In a, in a really enjoyable way. Like, it's one of the best movie villains uh, in superhero films. And I think Alfred Molina's fine in, in the sequel. I, quite, I like Alfred Molina's performance, um, but I think I prefer Willem Dafoe in the, in the first one, in that arc, more so than the Doctor Octopus one, because it's very similar. What about the, the third one? So the third one, um, I remember watching it at the time and thinking this is nowhere near as bad as everyone's saying it is, right? And sort of enjoying it, even though it had like some, a lot of problems in terms of the way it, ties to, it tries to resolve the story. Um, and it does have my favorite <laughs> attempt to, <laughs> to resolve like a, a dangling plot thread uh, in cinema history, which is James Franco, who's the son of the Green Goblin. Uh, he blames Peter Parker for the death of his father because he sees him like coming in through the window and delivering the, his father's dead body. And nothing will shake him from that conviction, even though Peter Parker tries to explain what happens. So I need to find a way of like resolving this storyline despite all this and, and getting them to work together. And the way they decide to do it is the butler, <laughs> the butler who's, who's, uh, who, who is in all three films. He comes in at one point and says, oh, I, I just wanted to mention that the night your father died, I was cleaning his wounds and they were definitely caused by his hovercraft thing. So there's no question that it was self-inflicted. Spider-Man, good guy. First of all, there's no way you'd be able to tell the wound in his belly was was caused by the sharpness of his glider. Why does the butler even know like the what the sharpness of the glider is? Maybe maybe he's a doctor in a previous life. But anyway, that aside, there's no way you'd be able to tell it was self-inflicted because Spider-Man could still stab him with his hover hoverboard, <laughs> or like made it malfunction in such a way that it kills him. That's, so there's stuff in it that's like terrible maybe on an objective level, but it's, it's really trashy and enjoyable in its in its messiness. 
And that includes um, James Franco's, like, snowboard hoverboard. (laughs) (laughs) Extreme sports. Yeah. And there is that transcendent scene in which um, um, Tobey Maguire transforms into Connor Oberst. (laughs) That part is so cool. It justifies the entire film. But also, the film is terrible. <laughs> it's a lot worse. It is a lot worse than I remember. Like, it gets worse as it goes along. I think, I think, I think the third one is probably my favorite one of them, for being honest. There's, there's a lot more to enjoy in terms of, like, complete silliness. The, I mean, the, the most indefensible part is the bit where they decide to retcon um, the death of Peter Parker's father. And say, oh, actually, it wasn't the guy you thought it was in the first film. It was this new guy, Sad Man. <laughs> he did it. You mean, uh, I know that's, that's pretty dumb, but you mean uh, not his father, his, his uncle. His uh, uncle, yeah. That stuff is like, oh, gosh. <laughs> Just to give it some, like, stakes. I like it. I think it's enjoyably dumb. But yeah, like, I, it was, it was, it, it was a lot worse than I remembered it. There's still bits that I really enjoy, even, and I enjoy kind of the bad stuff, but. The, the CGI is, like, dreadful. Um, it's interesting that the first two, the CGI supervisor, was John Dykstra, more known for practical effects. I mean, that's why they look so good. Yeah, so so some of, the, some of the CGI scenes, like, they look dated, and there's some bad moments in the first two, but there's a lot of stuff that holds up really well, especially, like, the movement of Spider-Man when he's swinging through the streets. Mm-hmm. It does actually have a really nice momentum to it and even sense of weight that is uncommon for cgi and there's also like a cartooniness to the cgi that you know kind of works for it anyway so that's (laughs) 